Hello, welcome to Out in the Bay, queer radio and podcast. I'm Eric Jansen. I want to introduce you this week to an organization that has helped tens of thousands of Bay Area residents and through its groundbreaking work has helped change how health professionals and politicians across the United States think about the importance of healthy food. Project Open Hand was founded in 1985 by San Francisco resident Ruth Brinker, a retired food service worker who started cooking and delivering meals to people debilitated by HIV and AIDS, first by herself, then with a few volunteers. I had just watched a friend die. And I was absolutely shattered to see how quickly he became unable to care for himself. And I began worrying about all of the other people in the city that I knew had AIDS and wondering how they were fending. And I just felt compelled to start a meal service for them. That's from a short documentary, The Ruth Brinker Story, released in early 2022. We'll hear more about the film later this half hour. Today, Project Open Hand provides 2,500 life-saving meals daily. That's about a million meals a year and 200 bags of groceries daily to sustain people experiencing illness, social isolation, or the health challenges of aging. Its mission has expanded to serve people experiencing not only HIV-AIDS, but also heart disease, diabetes, cancer, and other critical illnesses. And its territory has expanded beyond San Francisco to also serve Alameda County. Project Open Hand is also a founding partner of the Food is Medicine Coalition, a nationwide nonprofit organization that supports research into and advocates for honoring nutritious food as a foundation of medical care. Here to speak with me about Project Open Hand, it's Dining Up for Life East Bay event September 29th, the Food is Medicine movement and more, are Paul Hepfer, Project Open Hand CEO since 2019. Welcome, Paul. Thank you. Great to be here. And Lee Jewell, an associate marriage and family therapist in San Francisco who's a member and former co-chair of San Francisco's HIV Community Planning Council and a Project Open Hand client and past member of Project Open Hand's board of directors. Welcome, Lee. Hi, nice to be here. Thanks so much. Before we get into our main topics, briefly, I'd like to ask what brought each of you into to Project Open Hand. Great. Well, thanks again for this opportunity. Um, you know, I've been at Project Open Hand a little over three years now as CEO I um, moved here from the South Bay where I was involved in a public health uh, foundation for a number of years and great organization, very happy to be a part of that organization. And really being a CEO wasn't on my radar and wasn't something I really wanted to do because the added ad- added stress associated with that role. But if I ever was to take on a role, it would have to be at an organization like Project Open Hand and the time was just right. So I I, I took the position and I celebrated my one-year anniversary, March 17th, 2020, on the day that we had the shelter-in-place order for COVID-19. So for two-thirds of my tenure at Project Open Hand, it's really been under this uh, very unusual circumstance. Right, which may continue for a while, unfortunately. Um, Lee, how about you? What brought you to Project Open Hand? So I, I tested positive in 1986, um, and when I moved to San Francisco in 93, I became sick with HIV and developed my AIDS diagnosis, and got that in 1996. And that's when I became a client of Project Open Hand and been receiving groceries and meals since then. Do you remember how you learned about Project Open Hand? Probably through um, uh, other people with HIV and just through the care system here in, in San Francisco because we have a really good care continuum. Okay, thank you. Before we get into the history of Project Open Hand, I'd like to know more about the food is medicine movement, which really intrigues me. The basics seem so obvious. Eat well to support good health. Do governments and health insurers see it that way? 
more and more so, they're starting to see it that way. And, and I think it's, um, you know, people in the medical profession are very aware of the impact that your diet and your nutrition has on uh, not only managing a chronic health condition like diabetes or HIV or cancer or heart disease, but the, the, the reasons and, and what goes into um, developing a condition such as that to begin with. So, you know, the, because of the research we've done in the food is medicine uh, community nationally and in the state of California, we built a body of evidence to support the information around how you can change your diet and certain types of meals can really help you not only feel better and live a, a more active life, but keep you out of the hospital and, and save millions and millions in healthcare costs. Mm-hmm. And have insurance companies and governments essentially bought this concept or are they still uh, resistant? In some states, they have picked up on it and they're on board. And California, for instance, there's a new um, billable line item uh, in, in part of the CalAIM initiative that it's called Community Supports. And one of those items is um, coverage for medically tailored meals for people with certain health conditions. Medicare, the national, the biggest, biggest uh, payer of um, health insurance in the world, uh, has recognized the importance of nutrition and several other states throughout the country. So part of our job in the California Food is Medicine Coalition and the National Food is Medicine Coalition is to really continue to provide that data and that information and conduct peer-reviewed research so that we can inform the medical community and healthcare that not only is it the right thing to do to help your citizens have the right type of food, but it will also save millions and millions of dollars. Mm-hmm. Okay. You just, you just mentioned, and I've heard this phrase before, um, medically tailored food. As I understand it, these are meals designed with each individual's specific situation and nutritional needs in mind. And uh, Lee, Jewel, with your personal experience and your service on San Francisco's HIV Community Planning Council, I'm sure you have some insights on this. What can you tell us about the need for specific types of nutrition for people who are HIV positive? Well, people with um, um, chronic illnesses have different um, needs, right? And uh, where that shows up is the ability to be able to feed people based on what their need is. So, for instance, if you go into Project Open Hand, you actually receive meals in different categories that tailor to those different uh, needs or conditions. Okay, You like, can actually meet with um, a dietitian at Project Open Hand, and she can help you with that. Right. How does that work out? Is it like categories of illnesses that would, would define what types of food you get, Paul? When all of our clients come to us based on a medical referral from a provider. So if they come to us and they have type 2 diabetes, we have a special meal uh, developed for people with type 2 diabetes, and we have uh, special groceries too. And similarly with heart disease, end-stage renal disease, HIV, you know, if you, have, if you have congestive heart failure, you can have very little sodium. And, you know, I, I don't think people realize how small amount of sodium you really should have if you're dealing with that particular illness. And our registered dietitians working with our chefs create a meal line specifically for people with those illnesses. And I think what sometimes people don't understand, and this was really amplified during COVID-19, is we learned a lot about food insecurity during COVID-19, that, that so many Americans, particularly older adults, were food insecure. Well, what we wanted to amplify is that not only were they food insecure, they, were, they had nutrition insecurity. Mm-hmm. So it's not just accessing a, you know, a pizza or, or something that someone can drop off for you. If you have certain health conditions, which most people do that are over the age of 60, 
they need special types of, of meals, and we were able to provide those types of meals. That's a perfect segue to, actually, I wanted to play another clip from the uh, Ruth Brinker uh, documentary. And every day, three more cases are identified, and yet still, surprisingly few people are familiar with the Acquired Immune Deficiency Syndrome, or the acronym by which it's frequently... The newspapers would be full of people that were dying of AIDS, but most of them weren't dying of AIDS, they were dying of malnutrition. That's from the film, The Ruth Brinker Story. It's a little hard to hear her last word there. She said people were dying not of AIDS directly, but from malnutrition. So first I want to ask you what malnutrition looked like in this specific situation, and then more generally. Yeah, early on in the HIV AIDS epidemic, many people were dying in San Francisco and throughout the world, actually. Uh, People were not visiting them. They had no food at all. Um, When, as years went by and medication improved, If you didn't have the right type of nutrition, it was hard to take your medication, and it had an adverse um, effect. So I think Ruth and and all the folks early on in Project Open Hand really began to learn how important it was to keep the right kinds of calories on. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not just sugar. It's not just, you know, fatty stuff. It's the right type of nutrition that your body needs to help maintain your health or improve it. Mm -hmm. And process medication. Mm -hmm. Correct. Right. Some medications work better with food. Some exactly. others some without. better without. Yeah, exactly. Right. Okay. Yeah. And how does that concept also apply to people with other illnesses? Yeah. The, um, one of the best examples we have, I mentioned it earlier, is congestive heart failure. You know, people that, that have too much sodium and they have congestive heart failure, they will retain fluids. Uh, they will be in and out of the hospital quite frequently. And um, not only does it impact their quality of life, but they're one of the most expensive population of people to, to maintain in health um, with health services because of this in and out of the hospital, much of it related to diet. Mm-hmm. Okay, very good. You know, this is another thing that I think is kind of fantastic. If, if this food is medicine concept started here in San Francisco with Project Open Hand, is that fair to say? Or was it something that preexisted? Well, I, I would say that that Ruth Brinker was definitely one of the first in the country to provide this type of, of food for people living with HIV and AIDS. But very quickly throughout the country, there, there was someone, in fact, even, even some of her statements said, I bet there's a Project Open Hand, similar organization in every major city in the country. And there really is. And so I, I, I don't think it's fair to say that we, we founded the Food as Medicine uh, movement. There were many partners doing the very similar work that we were doing, and we're all doing it together. So, as we mentioned in the opening, Ruth Brinker, at that time a retired food service worker and a grandmother, started Project Open Hand in 1985. It was a small operation serving mostly, uh, perhaps exclusively, gay men suffering with AIDS and from related malnutrition. When was Project Open Hand's first step from essentially a one-woman-led operation to the next step up, and how did that happen? Well, I, I would say it was a pretty quick step in that Ruth was able to mobilize friends and volunteers to, to come into her kitchen here in San Francisco in her house and really help her cook meals for people in the city and in Oakland. And, and I think, you know, that's one of the things that attracted me. Um, that's probably the most compelling reason I joined this organization was because of the story of the humble beginnings. And, it, and someone mentioned to me that this was a retired individual that started Project Open Hand. This wasn't a tech titan. This wasn't someone with billions of dollars. This wasn't someone that had led multi-million dollar organizations. This is someone that knew this was the right thing to do, and she just set about doing it. She literally saw people, and people were telling her about people that were sick and needed help. Mm-hmm. And she literally stepped up. 
Yeah, she did. I mean, there's a part in the film where she says, you know, if I see a need, I have to do it. Yeah. I have to fill in. Yeah. When did Project Open Hand start serving people with illnesses other than HIV and AIDS, and why? It, it, quite a few years later, I think the community saw what an important asset it was to have an organization that could prepare medically tailored meals. And we had so many, we had very high rates of diabetes in the Bay Area throughout the country. And I think just generally we saw ever-increasing incidence of other chronic health conditions, and we had a model that works, so why wouldn't we um, apply that model for other individuals in our community? And I would say it was city government as well, right, because they saw how our care continuum uh, is made up of, of not only medical providers but nonprofits that meet the needs of people with HIV and AIDS and other medical conditions, and that's how the care, care continuum best meets the needs of our population. Okay, thank you. You're hearing Out in the Bay, Queer Radio and Podcast. I'm Eric Jansen. My guests are Project Open Hand CEO Paul Hepfer and Lee Jewell, a marriage and family therapist, longtime Project Open Hand client and former board member, and a member and former co-chair of San Francisco's HIV Planning Council. We're talking about the Food is Medicine movement and Project Open Hand's history and current operations. Learn more about Project Open Hand at its website openhand.org. That's openhand.org. So let's talk now about social isolation and how that can affect people's mental and physical health. How does social isolation show up in Project Open Hand's community of clients? Lee, do you want to address that? One of the things that we learned during the epidemic was we couldn't get together, right? We couldn't meet up for groups, which are really uh, important for clients to be able to connect and have the interaction so they can get more information and get a meal perhaps, right? So um, when that didn't happen, people, groups just stopped. And the only way some of the groups kept going was virtually, right? It was through the internet, like through Zoom meetings. And we saw that uh, that wasn't really all that successful. And we kept hearing, or I kept hearing about people that were really isolated because they never had that, in, they, they were missing that interaction again, right? So we saw HIV rates go up again. We saw STI rates go up again. And people were really, really isolated and missing that social interaction. And we know that that's important for people's mental health, right? When we don't have that, it's, it, it, we see people's health declining. Mm -hmm. I know the uh, Centers for Disease Control had a report about that. Uh, Paul, can you tell us about any of the highlights from that, that, from that study? Well, you know, even before the COVID-19 pandemic, um, CDC and other federal agencies like uh, Centers for Medicaid and Medicare Services, uh, known as CMS by most of us, that oversees Medicaid and Medicare, released several reports uh, that highlighted the ever-growing incidence of loneliness, social isolation, and depression in older adults in America. And, you know, this, this is a really sad thought when you think about it. These are people that literally built our country, that fought in our wars, that have paid taxes their whole life, and they're experiencing loneliness at rates we've never seen before. Mm. And, and when, you, when you take that reality and those facts and you put on top of it, many of those individuals are dealing with diabetes or HIV or cancer or other chronic health issues, this becomes even more compounded. And if their health condition deteriorates to the point where they can't leave their home to shop for groceries and prepare the meals they need to maintain their health or self-manage their health condition, then we have this spiral that it's just really tragic that we're seeing this in the country. So for many of our clients that are not able to get out of the home, we deliver meals to them um, direct face-to-face. -face. 
Um, dur- before COVID, we were able to have a more meaningful interaction. But during COVID, we were at least able to still have a face-to-face, um, you know, put hang the meals on the doorknob that we would knock on the door, the client would open the door, and we'd be able to wave and make sure the person had the meal. You mentioned a minute ago that the reports, the incidence of loneliness has uh, really gone up mm-hmm. even before COVID. What, what are the reasons behind that? What are the factors? We're just not as multi-generational as we used to be many, many years ago. Um, you know, some, even some of our services are segregated in that here's a place for seniors and here's a place for young adults and here's a place for families. So, so I think there were a lot of things that went into that. But I think underlying what, what I know is definitely true is that we do have higher rates of people with chronic complex health issues. And as they become more disabled from those illnesses, they are going to be more isolated. And that's really our target population that we serve. Okay, thanks. And for both of you, are LGBTQ community members more likely to have problems with social isolation than the general population? Lee, why? I would say so because I think stigma is still an issue. People are still are stigmatized because of their HIV status, because they're gay, they're trans, or they're gender nonconforming. And um, we see that even here in San Francisco, uh, including across the country. So um, I think it's a major contributor to why people are feeling more isolated mm-hmm. now. We're not able to get, we, we still have a lot of fear in getting together. Also, especially true for older folks who grew up in a time when yes. it was uh, less accepted than it is now. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But it's surprising to me how people test positive today still hold on to the idea of what it is to be sick. And they still hold that in their head. And that's how they move throughout the world. And that informs how they interact with other people. And so it contributes to that isolation that we all feel, the loneliness. Sure, sure. So I I don't know if you touched on this a little bit already, but you want to give any more details about specific programs that Project Open Hand is doing to sort of combat that isolation? Yeah, right at the start of the the COVID-19 pandemic, Project Open Hand was awarded a federal grant from the Administration on Community Living, which is a large federal agency that manages senior nutrition money. And they put a call for proposals out for agencies across the country to come up with creative models for addressing social isolation, uh, particularly in light of the new pandemic. And so our three-year grant is looking at uh, ways for us to continue to provide medically tailored nutrition for people that are already isolated, but yet bringing them using technology together in other groups to talk about their health condition and to talk about the specific type of nutrition that they're providing. So really, we're creating little micro-communities with our clients that are receiving our services. And as we refine this model, we're, we're bringing in some other rural communities, like we're working with our partner series in Sonoma County. Um, so we'll be able to provide some of the virtual socialization while they provide the medically tailored meals. So you can see how if we're successful there, this model can be applied in any community across the country. Right. One of the earliest ways that Project Open Hand expanded their customer or client base was seniors at congregate sites. They deliver meals to seniors at homes where people then could come together and have a meal together. Right. So and that's a, really a great way to bring seniors together and um, avoid that kind of social isolation and loneliness. Right. Very good. Okay. We heard a couple clips earlier from the Ruth Brinker story short documentary, which premiered at the Castro Theater in May, Harvey Milk's birthday, I believe. It gives a great portrait of this pioneering woman and of Project Open Hand's founding principles and current practices. How will Project Open Hand be using this film, first of all? 
Yeah, we are really excited about this this short. You know, um, I I often before the pandemic and even during uh, through channels like Zoom and other um, other video opportunities, I would tell the story of Ruth Brinker and the story of Project Open Hand, but no one could tell it better than actually seeing Ruth and hearing Ruth's voice. So uh, after we were able to work with Bernalite Movie Productions to create this 22-minute film, we thought, well, this is a great way for us to use this in corporations, in church groups, in um, coalitions, in, um, in government agencies to really tell the story of how one person, as I mentioned earlier, who was not a wealthy person, uh, but really addressed a grassroots challenge in our community and rallied the community around her too. We've done client stories, we've done newsletters, we've done a lot, we, we do an amazing calendar, but we never really documented the story of Ruth Brinker. And it needed to be documented and it was the right time to do it too. So we're really excited to, to be able to release this. How can our listeners see it? Well, um, they will be able to see it soon. I think we're going to post it on YouTube after the film festival series or, or a season kind of winds down. There's other film festivals that are that are reviewing it right now. So we'll do some large me- media uh, post about it and we'll make it available free to the public. Okay, fantastic. So let's talk about Dining Out for Life East Bay. It's coming up on Thursday, September 29th. Is Project Open Hand the only beneficiary of this event? So Dining Out for Life is a national fundraising event for agencies that provide HIV AIDS services. And um, our colleagues at San Francisco AIDS Foundation does a Dining Out for Life in San Francisco in the spring. I believe it's in April. Uh, We do ours in in, uh, Oakland and in the East Bay in September to, to make sure that we can all support each other's events because we want to be there for each other. And, you know, one of the, the important elements of this event that we're really excited about during COVID, it was really hard for us to maintain the numbers of volunteers that we had prior to COVID. You know, we used to have 120, 150 volunteers every day at our 730 Polk Street office. And during COVID, we just really had to reduce the numbers of people that were in this space. And, but people are still looking for ways to give back and to contribute. And it's really a pretty simple way to, to help us out is to go out to eat to one of the participating restaurants in, in, uh, in the East Bay. You can bring friends. You can, you can host a restaurant. You can be an ambassador. You can help us recruit sponsors. So there's just a lot of ways to help now. Who doesn't want to have an excuse to go out to eat, right? Hello. I'm yeah. there. <laughs> yeah, a lot of restaurants have parklets too. So uh-huh. you, know, you can have your meal outside. Are you still looking for restaurants to participate? We sure are. Yeah, we, we there's no limit to the number of restaurants in the East Bay that we can sign on. Um, yeah, even if it's kind of short notice. Even if it's short notice, we'll figure out a way to make it happen. How long has Dining Up for Life East Bay been going on? I believe this is our third year, fourth year. Okay. Uh, fourth year that we've been a member of this. And I assume the last two years that wasn't, didn't really happen? Or That's did right. They do it, was, it, was, yeah. it, was, it was mainly takeout, um, which, which as a fundraising event, it, it really wasn't. Um, as successful as we'd like to see, but it was a great way for us to support those restaurants that really had very little traffic coming into them. Right. What's really great about this, too, is there's a sizable HIV community in the East Bay, um, especially Alameda County. So it's really awesome um, to have this fundraising effort happen in the East Bay because there's always so much focus on San Francisco. Project Open Hand is one of the few organizations and the nonprofits that are operating in multi-counties, right? right. So it's important to highlight what's going on in, in Oakland. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How many restaurants participated the last time it was in person in 2019, roughly, do you know? Uh, I think there was 15, 16. 
23? <laughs> there were 23 restaurants. Marcus so. Tolero uh, uh, is using hand signals hand here. Signals I want to thank Marcus, for uh, the PR person for Project Open Hand, for doing a lot of getting yeah. this together. Thank you, Marcus. So we'd love to get back up over 20 restaurants. If you want to go to a restaurant specifically that you know is involved, how would people find that? Go they, to your website? They can, yes, they can go to our website. They can look at very prominently displayed as Dining Out for Life East Bay. And we can make sure that they um, that they they see which restaurants are participating. You get to okay. pick your favorite restaurant. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. Super. Some people will go lunch and dinner. Yeah. Know, if they really want. Oh, to there we go. <laughs> Breakfast. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So, last thing I want to ask you about is besides dining out for life, do you have other needs for volunteers year round, and how do you recruit them, and what opportunities are we there? We definitely do. We, you know, the um, one of the biggest areas we've had need for are delivery, like regular mm-hmm. delivery people that can that can help us out. Um, during the pandemic, we had more and more of our clients that were shut in, as mm-hmm. you all know, shelter in place. And, and there's many more that are um, at home now that need deliveries than, than we were really able to keep up with. So again, on the Project Open Hand website, we have uh, very prominently displayed volunteering, and we list these areas as hotspots. Mm-hmm. So the hotspots are where we need people right now, and we need them on a regular basis. So it's um, really, um, really easy to find. You can register, and, and there's a lot of different opportunities in the East Bay and in San Francisco. And typically, what are the things that are most you know, in most need for? Uh, delivery is, is a big need. Um, filling bags. We actually, because we deliver grocery bags now, and the grocery bags aren't just, you know, grab a bunch of food and throw it into a bag because it's very specialized, like we talked about earlier, for, client, for people's based health on conditions. Their, yeah. Exactly. So we need a team of volunteers to fill grocery bags according to the prescription related to that person's health care. And then we also have um, volunteer group opportunities where, you know, we might get a 50-pound bag of rice and we don't deliver a 50-pound bag of <laughs> rice to a client. We break that down into smaller um, smaller usable measurements and we seal those and, and right. then we put those into our grocery centers. So there's sure. a lot of tasks like that that we need hundreds and hundreds of volunteers similar to Similar to food banks in a way, similar yeah. type of yeah, volunteer it needs. It's, yeah, it's a food bank, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Anything else you want to uh, mention before we uh, close out here? Well, you know, we just really appreciate this opportunity. I've, as I mentioned earlier, you know, I've only been at the organization and in the city three years, and I knew about Project Open Hand, but I am struck by the number of people that have been here five years or less who really don't know about us. You know, when I run into folks that have been here for quite a while, they they rave about the history and the importance, and they say they're volunteers and they're donors. Um, so I really think it's important for for those of you listening that if you do know about Project Open Hand, I would invite you and encourage you to tell your maybe new folks to the city about Project Open Hand and the great work we do. Because without without people, uh, you know, in the next few years helping to keep this going, uh, a lot of people in the future are going to miss out of really important services. And I would say come to, come to Project Open Hand and see what we do. You know, meet clients, meet the staff, because they're amazingly dedicated people. Is there a, can you just drop by and where, where is it? Uh, our headquarters in San Francisco is at 730 Polk Street, a big brick building. We, we share it with uh, a couple other really important nonprofit partners of ours in between Ellis and Eddie. Uh, look us up online, send an, inf- uh, an email um, to Project Open Hand, and we'll set up a tour for you. Cool. And do you have an actual facility in the East Bay? We do. On, on San Pablo Street, we have, um, um, we have a grocery center there that's currently being remodeled. We're able to make that bigger now. We're mm. creating a space so that clients can actually come in and shop. Oh, wow. So so they don't just pick up groceries. Nice. We're actually going to build a, a shopping experience oh, for cool. them. Yeah, that's great. That's mm-hmm. fantastic. Okay. I want to thank you both for being here. 
Well, I appreciate it so much. Thank you. You've been listening to Out in the Bay Queer Radio and Podcast. My guests were Paul Hepfer and Lee Jewell of Project Open Hand. You can learn more about Project Open Hand at their website, openhand.org. That's openhand.org. We'll also have links on our site, outinthebay.org, in the post for this week's show. You can catch up on past episodes, get in touch, and sign up for our email newsletter at outinthebay.org, too. While you're there, please consider chipping in. Your donations help us keep bringing you queer voices and stories. Out in the Bay is nonprofit and independent. We get no financial support from the radio stations that air Out in the Bay weekly, nor from NPR, nor from podcast platforms. We rely on listener support. Just hit the donate button at outinthebay.org. That's outinthebay.org. Thank you kindly. Big thanks to Richard Merck and Brad Payton of Silicon Valley for their ongoing generous support, and to Susan and Hayward and Keith of Six Pack Foods in Reno, Nevada for their recurring monthly gifts. Join them and join us, if you can, please, at outinthebay.org. We'll thank you on the air only if you say it's okay. And here's a way you can help that won't cost you a cent. Please let us know how we're doing. We'd love to hear your comments and suggestions for future shows. Just shoot an email to outinthebay at yahoo.com. That's outinthebay at yahoo.com. Special thanks this week to San Francisco Public Press and its radio station, KSFP, in whose studios we recorded this week's Out in the Bay. So glad to be out of my COVID home studio in a real radio station now. And to our studio engineer, KSFP station manager, Mel Baker. Porfirio Rangel is this week's audio editor. Thank you, Porfirio. I'm Eric Jansen, and I'm so glad you could join us. Come back next week, won't you? At outinthebay.org.